0: Episode two, alternative theories. Alternative theories abound in this case, from the reasonable to the bizarre to the absolutely ridiculous. Researchers have dozens of theories of the case, drug burn, mafia hit, CIA plot, Tex Watson's drug business, Satanist, and a whole host of other off the wall ideas. And while I admit one or two of these theories may have some merit, most can be dismissed very quickly if one stops and really thinks about the details. The contradictory nature of some of these theories put forth is extraordinary. On the one hand, they say Manson and Watson desperately needed money and wanted to control her on drug, drug turf, so they knocked off Wojtek and Jay. But then, in the same breath, these researchers wax on about how brilliant Manson and Watson were as drug kingpins, They're running a drug empire, making deals upwards of 20,000. Well, which is it? Were they hippie near do wells who turned to murder? Or did they run a drug empire because they were just so brilliant? Then they have them taking out hit contracts for the mafia, federal agents with their puppeteers. It gets nuttier and nuttier. And I'll knock down each one of these theories one by one. Most importantly, I'll explain why one of the victims in particular gives lie to all of these ridiculous conspiracy theories surrounding the case. And I'll review the despicable way in which his name is being dragged around. This was about murder, not money. Not the mafia. This wasn't a drug turf war. This wasn't Scarface. It was more sinister. This was a racist, angry ex-con mad at the world. The mafia hit theory. The mafia hit theory is one of the more laughable theories I've seen. Although Manson and Watson knew connected mobsters, there's no doubt about that, it involved drug distribution, not the sanctioning of hits. No self-respecting mobster would hire two reprobates like Manson and Watson to kill anyone. Both men were on drugs, and the mob only hires pros. Both were also notoriously unstable. And mob hitmen don't kill pregnant women or wives. That is a no-no, especially back in those days. If a guy they hired had killed a pregnant woman, that hitman would have been at the bottom of the Pacific by Monday morning. The mob also would not kill high-profile people like Tate or Sebring either. Jay Sebring knew a lot of mob guys. Lots of Hollywood friends. They would use a guy like Jay, not kill him. What would they kill him over? A $1,000 worth of coke? Even in 1969, that would not be worth it. Keeping up appearances and never bringing attention to oneself was the name of the game back then for guys in organized crime. With regard to the LaBiancas specifically those researchers who, because of Lino's gambling problems, think the mafia took him out. One, as stated above, they wouldn't hire a loser like Manson. Two, Lino owned nine racehorses, two cars, two houses, and a boat. Plus, he had access to huge amounts of cash through the supermarket, which he was already embezzling. If the mob was after Lino to pay up, they could have had him just sign over the horses and the boat, or cooked up another skimming scheme. That would have covered the tens of thousands he was supposed to have owed. The mob uses guys like Lino. They don't need to take them out. The mob would kill big fish or guys who double crossed them. Lino was just another gambling addict with a family. You're not going to waste bullets on him. Was Lino frightened that someone was out to get him? Yes, and that's clearly evidenced by his statements to his mother, his letters to his daughter, his statements to his daughter, Corey, and Frank Jr.'s actions when he arrived home that Sunday night, August 10th. And didn't want to go in the house He probably had been listening to Lino for several months And Lino's fear And that fear transferred over to Frank And that's why Frank didn't go into the house that night Plus we have Tex Watson's statement In the book, in his book Would you die for me When Tex was in the kitchen Getting the knives Lino yelled in You're going to kill us aren't you Tex had no idea who Lino was Before that night But Lino thought someone was out to get him and Tex was the assassin finally arriving to finish him off. We'll never know why he thought that. My own belief is that he believed the creepy crawls by the family were interpreted by him as a threat from his bookie, and that's, that's why he became so afraid. Others believe Susan, Rosemary's daughter, was the one who had scared Lino. There was a large insurance payout waiting for her upon his death, which she received, by the way, it was $20,000. The house was bugged. We know that from the LAPD. Again, no one robbed the house during this time, either his bookie or the family or anyone else. The guns and coins were sitting there for the taking. The safe was untouched until Rosemary's daughter tried to steal the contents after the murders. The mob of Ma- or Manson or anyone else could have easily stolen what was in the house. They often left the door unlocked, the lobby office, which they did the night of the murders. So it's a strange coincidence why we'll never know Lino was petrified, which he was. Now, if it was a mob hit, why kill Stephen Parent? You know, collateral damage? It just doesn't make any sense. Tex and the girls were hiding in the bushes, if you believe theory one, that it was just coincidence that they ran into Stephen Parent. Tex clearly saw the car. He he knew cars very well. And Wojtek and Jay would not have been driving a Rambler, okay? And if he apparently knew both men so well, as many of the conspiracy theorists claim, he would have known what they drove. And also, besides the wastefulness of killing Stephen Parent that night, if it was a planned hit and Watson was acting like a professional hitman, why did he not wear gloves, uh, nor did any of the other murderers? Hell, I don't think Susan Atkins was even wearing shoes, did they want to get caught? Did Charlie, want? did Charlie? Did Manson want them to get caught? Let's say the mafia contracted with Charlie to take out Wojtek and La Bianca. How did the mob know the family would not talk if caught and point right back to them? I mean, the family got arrested all the time. This is why the mob would never use Charlie and Tex as hitmen. Now, Tex had a relationship with a guy named Eugene Massaro, which we'll explore soon from the drug business. Eugene Massaro had, it was a transplanted Bostonian mobster who came out to LA and walked right into a drug empire. And he had guys like Tex and probably two dozen other hippie ne'er-do-well losers dealing for him at street level. A lot of it out of Horn Avenue off Sunset. But dealing drugs is one thing. But using Tex in a murder-for-hire plot when you're a made man, in organized crime, is absolute malpractice. That's why it would not happen. The mafia hit thing is ridiculous. It, it just is silly. It's kind of like the way people think the mob hired a guy, you know, like Lee Harvey Oswald to kill Kennedy. I mean, he would have talked. Now, you could say maybe that's why he was killed. I don't know. But I just can't see a guy like Massar and other mobsters hiring two losers like Watson and Charlie Manson as hitmen. The drug burn theory. Listening to the many conspiracy theorists and Manson apologists, they would have you believe that Jay Sebring and Wojtek Farkowski, two of the victims from Cielo, were Colombian drug lords and that Benedict Canyon was the equivalent to the wiles of the Colombian jungle. And then they clashed with the drug empire of Charles Manson and Tex Watson. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, both Jay and Wojtek were rather inept drug dealers. There were no drug factories processing cocaine or or thugs running around with submachine guns protecting the property. It was just two guys selling small amounts of drugs from their cars. and Jay even had a little briefcase of drugs he carried around. Wojtek Farkowski was using his own product more often than he was making actual sales. Sebring used cocaine to lure in his clients. It took the edge off. He used a little bit himself. He did not have a lot of cash on hand either, which is strange for a guy who was supposedly so successful in selling drugs. He was a classic case of asset rich but cash poor. He was heavily leveraged with a couple of homes, a boat, a couple of shops, and numerous other things associated with growing his business. Now, according to Manson family member Vern Plumley, Manson and Watson were supposedly doing drug, in, drug deals in mid-1969 upwards of twenty dollars to $30,000 each. But if that was the case, where did that money go? By August, they were desperate for cash. They were in crisis mode. Charlie was running around begging people for money. So rumors that they were big-time drug dealers are ridiculous. Between the victims and the murderers, they all seemed inept at selling drugs. Plus, they were all using their own product. This is not a recipe for success, for building a drug empire. Their ineptitude and addiction prevented it. MDA, LSD, Coke, it didn't matter. None of these folks were a threat to any hardcore dealer or dealers. Now, as I said earlier, Jay Sebring was kind of untouchable. <clears throat> he was, he was, had high-profile clients like Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, Warren Beatty. He'd even cut Sinatra's hair a couple of times while in Vegas. And he did know a lot of mob guys. There's no doubt about it. Then there are those who say that Texan and were well acquainted with each other. But think of it this way. At Cielo, the night of the murders, when Susan Atkins brought Jay and Sharon into the living room, Jay Jay and Watson laid eyes on each other. Jay Sebring never made a personal appeal to Tex when trying to save Sharon. If Tex and Crumwickle's accounts are to be believed, and both say, described Sharon and Jay being brought into the living room and then laying eyes on Watson for the first time, Jay did not know Tex or recognize him when he was brought into the living room. If Tex is standing there with a gun making threats and Jay is trying to protect Sharon and Jay knew Watson supposedly through this drug business, then wouldn't he have appealed to Tex personally? He would have said something like, hey, Tex, let's talk outside. Or do you need money? We can work something out. Leave Sharon alone. You know why? Because they didn't know each other. Okay. Could Tex have met Wojtek or Jay during his visits to Horn Avenue? Probably. But he was so spaced out on various drugs, I'm not sure his memory was operating full-time. Now, Horn Avenue, for those unfamiliar, runs north from Sunset in West Hollywood, and at the time was known as the home of the high-end drug business. Um, Mobsters and drug dealers like Bernard Crow, who was Dennis Wilson's and Terry Melcher's dealer, lived over there. Now, Bernard Crow will surface again in our Manson story uh, in a later episode. Watson never searched Sebring's car either. Or had anyone else do it. If they were so well acquainted, then he knew what Jay drove. And why were drugs left in the car? LAPD made an accounting of what they found in the house and in the car. Marijuana and MDA were found inside the house. Cocaine and marijuana were found in Jay's car. Not a lot, but certainly amount Watson would have taken for himself. Why wouldn't he have had Linda Kasabian search the car? She was a pretty good thief and a drug user and a drug dealer. She would have known what to look for. Maybe Jay's briefcase of drugs was in the car. But they didn't do that, because their mission was murder. Okay? <clears throat> now, food for thought, at least my other, other points. If you're plotting a drug burn, why just walk up to the first person you see on the property, Steve and Perrin, and shoot them dead? Would you not want to be as quiet as possible till you get inside the house? I mean was Tech some kind of acoustics expert? knowing they, they're not going to hear me shoot this guy. You just let Stephen Parent drive past, and you go on with your mission. But no, it was to terrorize and kill. And now, there are also other alternative researchers who claim Parent was a drug dealer. Give me a break. Stop dishonoring his memory with that. There's no proof of that whatsoever. The LAPD speculated about that, it's very, and it's you know it's very hard to get police off speculation once they start. They did a really deep dive on it. You know what they found? Nothing. They decided there was no case. There was nothing taken off Stephen Parent. Money, drugs, or anything else. They even left his watch in the car. Just the mission was murder, not a drug burn. And there are those who would kind of with their own theory about, <clears throat> to this, about Parent's murder, that the circumstances behind Parent's uh, shooting are totally different. That he was coming from the guest house while the murder's had already started in the path behind that, uh, ranch fencing. Uh, and he saw what was going on. Then Tex looked out and saw him made eye contact and Steve made a run for it as he passed the house and he ran for the car and he jumped in the car and he tried to peel out and banged at the fence, get away, but then Tex shot him. Uh, you know, the, the projector of the bullets don't really, you know, they kind of belie that point. I mean, this is, um, you could, you could speculate either way. I'm open to that theory, but, you know, all of this is based mostly on parents' car and fence being scraped. Detectives figured he had tried speeding away. But the original story told by all of the participants were very similar. Two of them early on the investigation and unprompted, Kasabian and Atkins. And if you accept that story, it actually makes them sound worse, you know, lying in wait. You know, it's different if you panic and you kill somebody, you know. You know, why would they stick to that story if it makes them sound worse? Think about this. Tex had time to think about letting parent live, letting him drive by. Yet he chose to kill him. Or he could have made up an alternative story. Oh, yeah, I saw him running and I panicked. I didn't want to kill him. Blah, blah, blah. No, but the girls who were hiding on the berm couldn't see everything. And he told that story to the girls. The girls also were in close proximity. They heard all... They they heard the car coming. They all told the same story. Maybe they couldn't see everything, but they heard it. It was those shots were fired right near them. They had not started committing the murders yet. They were they were lying in and Tex killed Steve Parent. Now, why did Steve Parent's car have all those marks on and everything? I think he just did it backing up normally. Teens have a tendency to peel out. I know I did. If that hadn't been a true story, I still think a statement would have told it that way, um, in her original statement to police unprompted. Later on, I know she did tell a story, but um, she told a story many times and, you know, really hardly changed. It, this, this kind of terror just shows the madness of the family. You know, one person driving away wouldn't mean anything. He couldn't see them. You know, did they know how many people were in the house? Aren't drug burns planned out? That is the key to squashing this uh, silly theory. You don't start shooting everyone and killing everyone once you enter the house or property. Don't you get the money first or the drugs? You know, they did ask for money. They went to had Folger go get her wallet, and there was really not much in there. Where was all this cash that Voitech was supposed to have? Was there a trunk full of cash? Was it, was his pockets have cash on it? What about Jay? Where was the briefcase? They didn't have it because they all sucked at selling drugs. Now, do I think that who knew was gonna who knew that there were gonna be people at Cielo? I think Charlie knew. You know, um, that's why Tex cut the phone line. Vern Plumley and Danny Collar both mentioned to the police later on that Manson made a phone call that night. You know, Vern had seen him make the phone call. Danny later heard about it from a different family member. So the murder was the mission. The collective was the target, the people inside the house. Did they know about Sharon Tate? Doubt it. But she was there and they killed her. Also, if you want to take out either one of these guys, Wojtek or Jay, you could have arranged for a meeting somewhere out of the way, you know, Jay's house or on Horn Avenue. Why not call Jay? Hey, Jay, can I meet at the shop after you close? How about in Chatsworth near the ranch? If all this money was involved, Jay would have made the trip to Chatsworth. It would have been slumming, but for this, he needed cash and for a big-time drug empire he supposedly was running, you take care of business yourself. Instead, the family stages a home invasion as a prelude to a drug burn? Even for a drug-using, bad drug dealer like Tex, that's crazy. Now, for balance, <clears throat> did they did Tex and or Manson have connections to a mafia underworld drug operation? Yes. <clears throat> Tex certainly did. And the man they were most connected to, or thought to be connected to, was a guy named Eugene Massaro, who's the one mafia figure that we... Pretty much 99% know for certain he knew both Charlie and Tex. Now, I have yet to see any real evidence that Manson and Massaro had any real connection, but Manson certainly knew Massaro. Massaro knew Manson um, just through some of the minor drug dealing. He certainly had heard of him. You know, Massaro was well-known by everyone using drugs in L.A. He'd come from Boston and took over the drug business. You know, given Charlie's prison background and connections, a loose network of contacts in L.A. and other things, he certainly was familiar, familiar with him. However, there is very strong evidence that Tex and Massaro were very well acquainted and had a business relationship. And many point to that the Joel Rostow robbery in, 18, in April of 1969. Rostow was a jewel thief, a drug dealer, an all-around bad guy, and was actually a friend of Jay Sebring. But more importantly, Rostow was part of Massaro's drug running up, and they used a vending machine business's cover. Guys like Massaro and Rasta use used guys like Tex and other guys on the periphery, hippie types at that time, as intermediaries in low-level street deals. It makes good business sense. You have multiple levels of customers. You have multiple barriers between you and the crime. Further evidence is given by Tex Watson himself in his book, Will You Die For Me. I, I highly recommend reading that because um, it, it makes, again, makes Tex sound worse. If you read the story of the murders, it's horrifying. But most importantly, he does mention this indirectly about some sort of relationship with with Massaro. And he says, quote, I'd arranged to buy a kilo of grass from the dealer who'd been supplying the family. He fronted the dope with a vending machine company and people said he was with the mafia. I believe, uh, I don't have the book with me, but the quote's in front of me. Um, He's talking about the drug burn he had planned with his girlfriend to try to do a burn on Bernard Crowe which kind of led to things spiraling out of control just prior to the murders. Now, the only man he could be talking about is Massaro or maybe Rostow. The vending machine front is mentioned in uh, Massaro's FBI file, and if Massaro was supplying the family, then he also knew Charlie well. Now, Rostow was also dating Charlie McCaffrey, the receptionist at Sebring International. So it was J. Sebring's secretary. Another connection there, I have to admit. Rostow acted as the intermediary in Massaro's drug ring for quite a while in 68 and 69. Um, We know the police and the FBI had a large file on Massaro. They probably had also had a large file on Rostow as well. Um, Many people believe that Rostow is an important, maybe even a key piece in this sort of Tate-LaBianca puzzle. I'm not so sure. Now... The, on the April 13th, 1969, the robbery, Rostow claimed two armed men came into his home and tied him and Charlene up. Now that's, people point to it, I go, oh, that's what they did at Cielo. Well, that happens in a lot of crimes, right? <clears throat> in fact, Nicholas Schreck claims that Watson used the same gun at both crimes. I question everything Shrek says. The robbers beat Rostow and demanded he give them drugs. The taller of the two intruders, both Rostow and Charlene say this, who both had southern accents, is the one who shot Rostow in the foot as they fled. Okay, So one of Rostow's neighbors heard the gunshot and called LAPD, and they arrived and they found the untied, the, the untied Charlene and Rostow. But then they decided to search the house and found all kinds of drugs. Uh, they found pot and hash and coke. Uh, and it kind of brings up another question. What did the robbers actually make off with? The, Rostow was kind of vague on the cash. He says they took stuff, But what did they take? The police were puzzled. You know, maybe Rostow only gave him what what was within arm's reach. Who knows? Either that or the burglars were particularly inept. And if it was tax, let's face it, no surprise. Joel Rostow's bad guy career was rather brief. Uh, He was found murdered in the trunk of a rental car at Kennedy Airport in May of 1970. He was only 32. His parents buried him in Massachusetts. I think we all knew who killed him. Um, one quick correction, if you're out there reading some of the sources, Ed Sanders' book, The Family, and a couple of other authors claim that um, Rostow dropped off drugs at Cielo on Friday. I don't know if Mr. Sanders corrected this in a later edition, but that has since been uh, shot down as a theory. Rostow admitted, later, Rostow admitted to the LAPD that he made that up to impress Charlene, saying he had a close call with the murderers. Uh, so we know that's not true. Um, So overall, the idea that drugs were the driving force for any of these murders, even the LaBianca's, is ridiculous. If that was the case, all of these people were the worst drug dealers in America. Everyone from Farkowski to Sebring to Manson to Lino and Rosemary, Rostat were all sort of cash. And, you know, Sebring supposedly told the secretary that he got burned in a drug dealer the same week. These guys get burned more than a fireman. I mean, they were just they just stunk at it. And I know any speculation about Lino and Rosemary doing drugs is just positively ridiculous. Lino spent so much time at the track, he had no time to deal drugs. And I, I don't think Rosemary's businesses were fronts for anything. Just everyone involved here was either inept at the drug business or just not involved at all. They were totally out of their league. And also, people like to point to a guy named Billy Doyle, a drug dealer who was well-connected in Hollywood uh, and did run a, a, a a hardcore drug business. But he was also sexually assaulted at Mama Cass's house during a party by Farkowski and a few others. And many point to this as a revenge factor. Maybe Billy Doyle and his crew did it. Police checked into that. The FBI did too. Billy Doyle and his crew were not in L.A. at the time. I believe they were in Jamaica and later Canada trying to uh, uh, import some marijuana, large marijuana, and start a, kind of a new avenue of business there. So... It was not a drug burn. The mission was murder. The robbery motive. This is one of the more ridiculous alternative theories that are out there. Because people who propagate this theory and are out there saying it was a robbery gone wrong, don't really look at the evidence. If they really studied the family and their actions, they would see it, it truly, truly, more than any other alternative theory. Probably makes the least sense. Again, if it was a holdup and a robbery gone wrong, Watson is the worst stick-up artist ever, worse than even his really bad drug dealing. And also take the the rest of the family. For a group that was expert at breaking into houses, stealing cars, stealing credit cards, using these stolen cards fraudulently, why would they need to perform a home evasion if not to kill? And, And let's say they went there for money. This is a simple thing for people like Tex and the family. You bring everyone into the living room and you take their wallets, drugs, and cash and you leave. You don't stay around yelling about Satan and all this craziness. And why bring rope and cheap, cheap knives and some old revolver? I mean, and, and also, when you rob someone, you want to scare them. You want to scare all the money. You would give everybody a gun, right? They had a weapons room at Spawn Ranch with, I don't know, three, four dozen weapons that was run by family member Danny DeCala, who was a real expert, yet they only took the old revolver and some really old knives. Uh, That's strange. Well, maybe the knives weren't that old. They had purchased them in the past year. But So let's take this. So from May to August 1969, if money was the issue, if they really needed money desperately, and they did, Why not sell some of the car parts that they used for dune buggy production? That could have easily netted them $1,000 from the hall just on a day's sale. And they also kept spending money on camping equipment, tents, portable stoves, other related stuff. And the many gas schemes, steel gas, break into the gas pipeline. And they sometimes used stolen credit cards as well. If they did, wouldn't they have more cash on them? You know, Charlie said it was needed to prepare for Helter Skelter. That's why they were spending all this money. If the real-world trouble of, uh, of cash shortages can't shake Charlie's beliefs in Helter Skelter or his rage, then he really believed that theory, didn't he? Charlie believed in Helter Skelter. That shows the level of fear he felt. Despite severe cash shortages and desperation of the family, he still kept preparing for Helter Skelter because it was real to him. Take the La Bianca residence. This is the most glaring example of the ridiculousness of the robbery theory. Lino had at least a dozen antique weapons in the house, a huge coin collection, and both R- Lino and Rosemary had credit cards in their wallets. A lot could have been a lot could have been done with those weapons and coin collection. They could have been fenced. There were there were other valuable things in that house as well. And the night of the murders. They didn't take both their wallets. They just took rosemary's. And Lino even offered to bring, bring them to go get cash. Yet they didn't take him up on that offer. Charlie and Tex were both there when he said that to them. Now, we know that the LaBianca house was broken into at least six times, and it's now believed a seventh time, according to one family member. Those break-ins were probably creepy calls, Perpetrated by the family, and they occurred between January and late July, 1969. And the seventh one was supposed to have occurred the first Saturday in August, a week before the murders. So, yet they waited until the Labiancas were home to rob them. I mean, come on, they could have taken that; they could have emptied that house easily three or four different times. Yet they didn't do it. They show up when they're home. Why do they show up when they're home when they could have stole before? To kill. And the night of the murders, and I'll say this again, they only took Rosemary's wallet that had a couple of credit cards with it, and then they threw it in a bathroom at a gas station. And Leslie Van Houten took a small amount of gold coins, which eventually disappeared and might be sitting in someone's safe today or basement. So it's... it's, and why did he leave the wallet? Why did he tell Linda Kasabian to put the wallet in the bathroom? To stoke fear that the blacks did the murder. He thought the neighborhood was black where the gas station was. It wasn't. More the skelter talk. Starting a race war was important to Charlie because he believed it. Right? And also, during the, during the just prior to the murders, they had Leno there. They had a wall safe in that house. Why not have Leno open that safe? This is what the, uh, the, the believers that it was a robbery gone wrong, even, even if it was a hit, let's say the mafia hired him to kill him. Why wouldn't Manson want to, you know, cash in and have Leno open the safe before he killed him and take the money? Nobody would have been the wiser. Again, why not have Leno open that safe? Manson knew what was in that house. He'd been there at least six different times. Between the guns, the coins, and other antiques in the house, there must have been ten grand waiting to be fenced. Supposedly they had a fence who operated out of Long Beach and Santa Monica to do this. He was never found. But I'm sure they could have fenced this stuff. You know, why not do that? And remember, both Manson and Tex stated throughout the years that Lino said, I can get you all the cash you want. Why not take him up on the offer? You know why? Because they were there to kill, period. And Charlie had as much admitted to that in his book and in the Tom Snyder interview when he was left speechless when questions about the LaBianca's came up. In, and that was, I think we believe it was mid 1980 or early 81. And also, the, the we can go back to Cielo. If Sebring was a wash in drug money, as so many people claim, and the family needed cash and they wanted to rob why not get Jay alone up in his house or set up a deal on him to get him isolated and burn him again? They just show up at Cielo because Charlie tells him to go? Tech supposedly not knowing who was there? That's kind of strange. How about robbing his shop? Remember, Sebring was not a guy who was cash rich. He was cash poor. You can look at his... When they looked at his finances after his death, he was asset rich couple of houses, a couple of cars, a couple of shops. But he didn't have a lot of cash. His bank accounts were not very big. All right? So Charlie knew who was there at Cielo. That's, I mean, a lot of people speculate, but I'm sure he knew people were there. Whether he knew Jay Sebring was there, I don't know. You know, many family members claim that Charlie didn't know Sharon Tate was there, but that she thought she wasn't supposed to be there. I don't know. We'll see. But also... If, if Cielo was supposed to be... It was a robbery gone wrong, let's say. Why not check the cars? Why not steal one of the cars? Some of those parts of Sebring's Porsche could have been fenced for a lot of money. They wouldn't have been able to trace it. You have a successful Hollywood actress hairdresser to the stars and an heiress in Abigail Folger, and you don't seem to make much of a money to get money. It's kind of silly, I think. But anyway, I'll keep coming back. I, I always seem to end the segment on this. But if if Cash was the only goal, why shoot Stephen Parent? (laughs) Let's go with the theory that he was the first to die. I know people argue that he was the last, but let's say he was the first. Parent couldn't see them as he was leaving. They were hiding in the bushes on the berm to the left of the gate. If you're Stephen Parent, they'd be to his left. To me, the Killing of Stephen Parent, the first victim of that night, gives lie to the other stupid theories about this case. They took nothing from Stephen Parent. A wallet, a watch, Did they checked his pockets. No, I don't care how much of a hurry they were in. If they saw a watch or anything else of value, they would have taken it from a live or a dead body. They would take a house on fire if it would have netted them a lousy hundred bucks. It was about murder, not money. It was not a robbery. Stephen Parent's murder makes zero sense unless seen in the context of a rage-filled night of horror. This was not a robbery gone wrong. It was pure evil. It was pure murder. The CIA plot. Since the release of Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, uh, this theory has come into vogue again. And one of the reasons is that it just seemed like so many... Um, Doctors, psychiatrists and psychologists, and other medical doctors were operating in and around San Francisco and Los Angeles at various clinics during the Manson years. All had ties in one way or another to the CIA, the military, or the national security apparatus of the United States government. Now Manson spent a lot of time at the Haight-Ashbury Clinic after he got out of prison. And at least three of the doctors who worked there Uh, I think there were two psychiatrists and a medical doctor, all had connections to the CIA in various ways. Some were hired as contractors, testing out techniques and the effects of LSD. Others, hypnosis and various other things. It was quite common during the Cold War for this to be going on. I'm sure it's even pretty common today. But there is no evidence that somehow Manson came under the spell or was programmed to kill by these doctors, you know, using LSD or something else. Yes, Manson used LSD in a limited fashion, and at least most of the family did. But the idea that he was programmed to commit murders lacks any real evidence. I know there's various uh, CIA operatives who ended up dead. One guy falling out a window in New York, and people have speculated that Sirhan Sirhan was programmed, uh, just you know, in '68 to kill RFK. Um, you know, Charlie was just a classic case of a lifelong felony con man who went over the edge. I, I don't think Charlie could have been easily programmed. Uh, you know, Charlie was a lot of things, but he was not uh, not a man easily hypnotized. You know, no program was needed. Incarceration had, has programmed him uh, just to be tough and to be street smart and uh, to be a con man, you know. Look, CIA doctors were everywhere, they were experimenting with thousands of unsuspecting people, and Haight-Ashbury really was a natural center for that kind of operation. You know, I bet if you went to Skid Row in L.A. back, back during that time, there were free clinics there with CIA doctors in it, keeping meticulous notes. Some may have been there just, you know, as a case of charity, who wanted to do it. Others worked on their own, and yes, maybe the CIA planted people uh, at various drug centers. The the drug culture was an absolute obsession uh, for the federal government in those days. They thought it was a communist plot uh, to undermine the United States government and uh, just the structure of society in those days. It was paranoia. I, I think that's all it was. I think uh, Tom O'Neill, although the book's interesting and somewhat compelling, um, he it's a little overwrought the CIA theory and it's a little uh, it's a little silly because if you look at it, all this stuff was going on everywhere. And Manson just happened to be a nut who uh, came into contact with them. A hit on Jay Sebring. This sort of uh, another kind of, I think, a really wacky theory, which mostly stems from the now known event of Sebring's electrical system and new TV cable system uh, apparently having had wires cut on the night of August 7th just the day on Thursday, August 7th, the day before the murders. The LAPD supposedly knew about this, and many believe they brought the cut wires from Sebring's residence to Cielo uh, during the investigation to match the cut pattern on the telephone lines at Cielo that the Tex had cut that night. Um, I can't confirm it at all. Nobody seems to really be able to confirm that. Lots of people have theories. Uh, no one can, okay? Now, on the night of August 7th, there had been a gathering at Jay's house, I believe... Uh, Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, and uh, Wojtek were all there as well. I don't know if anyone else was there. Um, and they had um, called the installer, who was a young guy, who was, had been the son of a friend of Jay's, supposedly. This guy is still alive today, and he tells he gladly will talk to anybody about it. He's actually an attorney today. Um, and so he called up this, this college student, a college student back then, to ask why his cable TV system, entertainment system, was not working right. Now, they did have cable TV in those days. Jay was one of the few people in California to have cable TV. It was a brand-new system. Cable TV had only been around a couple of years, and it was really for the, I don't want to say elite, or it was an exclusive system at that time. And you had to have a lot of uh, skill in installing it. So Jay, the installer came over. He found the wires cut. And he says that couldn't have happened by accident. He swears that today 50 years later. The LAPD supposedly thought the same thing. Now, many, now Charlie was not at home. He was still at s He was on his way home with Stephanie Schramm that day. Many believe it was Tex, along with Linda Gasabian, who went over to uh, Jay's house that night to cut the wires. What Jay was planning, you don't know. Was he sending a signal? This is the theorist talking. I don't believe this, but was he sending a signal? Was he going to try to rob and kill them? We don't know. So, did he go there to get money? Was he gonna? Was it? Was it another home invasion? I actually don't believe that. You know, did text back out because there were so many people there. Jay's house, although he had neighbors close by, was kind of isolated. Um, there was kind of a drop for the backyard. It was uh, in a in a small depression around the pool. There's actually there's lots of videos of it online. You could watch on YouTube and, and so forth. Um, now this installer, he's his interviews are also online as well. The, who, was, who was interviewed, claims it was cut by an intruder. Uh, and he also stipulated this. It had to be cut by someone who knew the layout of the house very well and knew where all the wires were running to and from. Now, Jay's house is, still stands, uh, and it has a really odd history um, uh, of sort of just death, and uh, strange events happening since it was built back in the 20s. So um, check it out. Uh, I just don't believe it was a hit on Jay Sebring. Again, Jay Bring, if he was such a great drug dealer and this sort of Pablo Escobar-esque figure uh, around Hollywood, why did he have so little cash? Why would you kill someone who was not that successful a drug dealer? I mean, he was not carrying around kilos and kilos and kilos of cocaine in his car. I mean, if you pulled over his car, you'd have a briefcase, you'd have a couple of bags of Coke and some pills. Again, why murder this guy? I just don't understand it, uh, and it just seems like an odd theory. The Satanist, Now, operating in Topanga Canyon, Malibu, throughout Southern California during this time, late 60s, and in Northern California as well, were large uh, groups of Satanists. Some connected to international organizations, uh, Anton DeVay and others. uh, You know, just it was kind of a free atmosphere for them. They seemed to be able to operate with impunity. But there was a dark side. And many believe murder was a part of that. In fact, there's no doubt murder was a part of that. Many Satanists were arrested. So many bodies were turning up at Topanga Canyon and along beaches and in Malibu and along 101 during this time that law enforcement lost count. And more than three quarters of these murders uh, have never been solved, um, and many Manson alternative th- conspiracy theorists um, have proposed that it could have been Satanist. Roman Polanski had just made *Rosemary's Baby* a year before. Uh, he was obsessed with the occult. He was obsessed with uh, uh, with Satan, Satanists beliefs, and it, but really, Roman Polanski just used that as a vehicle in his movies. He was not a Satanist in any way. A lot of filmmakers are interested in the occult. They make good movies, let's face it. Uh, And he also had had an obsession with sex. And many Satanist ceremonies involve sex. Uh, Supposedly there were a film of him and Sharon and others having sex in what seemed like cult activity were found, but never introduced into evidence and the police put it back or gave it back to Polanski. Look, uh, there's been no evidence that Satanists or Polanski were involved in the murders of Sharon Tate and everyone at CLO. Certainly nothing to do with LaBianca. But Polanski was a weird guy. He was a sex addict. He was a terrible philanderer, a terrible husband. But there's never been any uh, talk of violence with this guy. He was just a creep. Um, and now, in the, there was a string of murders uh, in 1969 that have, that some have attributed to Manson, most notably Marina Habe. Uh, I think it was on New Year's Eve 68 or January 1st, 69. And then later on, Re- uh, a Canadian woman named Reet Jurvetson. Um, they were, Marina Habe's murder was never solved. Reet Jurvetson hadn't even been identified till just a few years ago. Um, thankfully, she had a sibling uh, alive, and they contacted her, and they identified her. But her, her murder also remains unsolved. Um, my belief is that the Manson family had nothing to do with it. We know that Reet Jurvetson was at a house party in the Panga Canyon. And that some of the girls from the family were there. This was shortly before her murder. Some of the less crazy members of the family said, I remember that girl, um, that girl had, had been murdered. Um, uh, but there's no sign that Tex was there or Charlie was there or any of the guys were there. Um, and I certainly don't think their murders have anything to do with the Manson family. I think certainly Marina Habe, whose mother saw some of the killers, Driving away with her. I think that was an incident that happened at the whiskey go go She was there that night people followed her home. It may have been Satanists and they they kidnapped her and killed her Nothing to do with the Manson family Um, And like I said the number of murders are done by Satanists during that time are still being estimated Uh, And I don't think it'll ever will ever have many of them solved nor will the total number of deaths during that time ever be uh, ever ever finally be solved The Love of Brother Theory. Uh, George Stimson, the husband of notorious Manson family member and convicted felon, Sandra Good, wrote a book. And in it, they propagate this theory that the murder, particularly Cielo, was committed as a copycat crime to free Bobby Beausoleil and in effect, keep the others at it from being arrested. Um, so their theory, s- supposedly, and this has been—it was talked about amongst some of the family members, particularly Susan Atkins and Linda Casabian. Others heard this in the in one of the dwellings at Spawn. The girls talking about this. Linda Casabian supposedly was the one who answered the phone from Bobby. Bobby was arrested on August 6th, driving Gary Hammond's car. So she picked it up and immediately was angry and was supposedly saying, we got to do something, we got to do something. You know, nobody really knows Linda Kasabian's involvement with individual family members. There's there's tons of evidence. She had met Tex a long time ago. She had met Bobby. She had met many of the others in the family, but no one really knows because she won't talk. But, you know, Danny DeCarlo and a few others, even Susan Atkins said this to the police unprompted during her first interrogation. That Linda got off the payphone saying, "We got to do something to free Bobby. We got to do something." And then somebody supposedly says, "We need to, you know, commit another crime, get money, whatever." They some of them mistakenly thought Bobby could get out on bail. He couldn't, but then they thought of this copycat crime thing. In order to be a copycat, you would have to kill. Whose idea was it to kill? That's the conspiracy theorist who says it was particularly Cielo. What were copycat crimes? Um, <clears throat> but something else significant happened that week as well. Sandra Good and Mary Brunner, were arrested for using stolen credit cards at a shopping mall. So they were taken to county jail uh, and locked up. Charlie didn't know about this. He was still at Essie and He was coming back from Northern California. He got back on Thursday. We Nobody knows. He wasn't there very long. He drove down to San Diego with Stephanie Schramm again. And he came back on Friday. He was told, supposedly, that's when he was dealt about Bobby. And he was told about Sandy and Mary. Now, keep in mind, Mary Brenna is the mother of Charlie's son. Okay. So <clears throat> there's a second kind of 1A to this. Some say Manson intended a series of robberies to earn enough bail money for Sandy and Mary to get out of jail. First, you know, again, this is very significant. The, the bail was cheap. It was like $100. And they still didn't have that money. So to all those who think they were these big-time drug dealers awash in cash and doing deals and fencing goods, they didn't have a lousy $100. Right? So, I mean, to me, it's just ridiculous. But what is significant is Charlie spent August 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, throughout that whole week after the murders, banging on doors for Dennis Wilson, Craig Jacobson, trying to find Melcher, begging for cash. There were a few other rich people he knew. He was driving up Beverly Hills to Pankin Canyon throughout Malibu, supposedly terrorizing people into giving them money. He got nothing, supposedly. Eventually, they got the money and they got Sandy Good out of jail. But Mary was charged with a second crime and they didn't have that money for some reason. I think they did. And Charlie wanted Mary left in jail. Why? Because maybe he felt arrest was imminent. Mary had been arrested before the murders so she wouldn't be tied to the murders if she was safely tucked away in jail. You know, Charlie thought of incarceration as a safe space. She wouldn't be tied to any of the murders and she'd be able to take care of his son. At least that's my theory. She ended up, Mary Brenna ended up staying in county jail till the first week of September. They couldn't come up with the 50 or or $100. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. So I think that was planned by by Manson. But to me, the love of brother theory doesn't hold up because, really, supposedly Casabian was the only one who ever talked about it. Did they want <clears throat> to? Did they want to commit a kind of a copycat crime to terrorize? Yes. Did they do it to free Bobby? I don't think so. I don't think anything was going to free Bobby. He certainly didn't have bail. He was he was charged with murder. Um, and Charlie, uh, Bobby apparently wasn't going to talk, so Charlie didn't care. He thought of Bobby's arrival. I think he wanted. Just to stay there. But he wanted the girls out of jail. So he did spend that time begging for money or stealing it. Maybe he did commit other robberies. Maybe they creepy crawled. We don't know. But again, he knew when they arrived at the LaBiancas in particular, I and mean, here's another thing that gives lie to the to some of these theories. I'll say it again. They could have easily stolen a bunch of stuff from the LaBiancas. Just the guns alone could have fenced them. And they could have had bail money for half of the county jail that weekend. And they took nothing. How about the gold coins? Could have this stuff been traced back to them? Maybe. But after three, four, five times a sale, nobody would have traced anything back to them. That's why these, nothing holds up with this theory or any other. And that sums up the alternative theories, at least the ones worth noting. I'm sure there are others and some of the researchers combine the theories to form other conspiracy theories. You know, it never ends. It's a, it's a constant circle, It's a, 100 miles an hour. Um, and, you know, I've taken a lot of flack for poo-pooing a lot of this from a variety of folks. Some get nasty, uh, you know, pro and apologists, the anti-Bugliosi crowd. Uh, who see him as the incarnation of evil, and then the general conspiracy anti-government types that see evil behind the scenes, pulling the strings, you know, the Bilderberg group type guys. It's just, it's crazy. Um, Look, I will go as far as to say the Cielo murders and the Waverly Drive murders, the Tate versus the Bianca. they were done for different reasons. But Rage was still behind it. Charlie wanted to kill. I'm open to more sort of alternative theories on the LaBianca case, because it is strange. He knew he wanted to go there. I can't argue with people who say that. Those murders... Cielo was to scare people. There is absolutely no doubt about that. He was enraged. He was striking back. The LaBiancas make absolutely no sense, because the police couldn't even tie the cases together for months. It just... any theory you're attached to, it, the lobbyists were not involved in drugs. Um, they they try to say that you're selling rosemary, selling drugs out of a dress shop. That was that's ridiculous. It was not happening. Something else was going on there. Maybe Charlie thought he was doing someone a favor, but nothing came of this. They didn't steal anything. you know. But they did dump the wallet in the bathroom at a gas station. To you know, to sort of add to the narrative of helter skelter. So what else is there? There really is And, you know, I know the other night I just heard Nicholas Schreck um, in a podcast. Interesting guy, a lot of great stories, a lot of great tidbits, did a lot of great research. But I have yet to hear Mr. Schreck tie it into a cohesive narrative. And I think it's the drug burners' primary theory, if I'm, I'm reading his stuff correctly. At least that's what I'm getting out of this. He has a lot of great, great stories, tidbits, and can... Create a tree that has a thousand different branches going in directions. But I don't see a cohesive narrative tying into one theory for the case. And I just don't think he's proved that. Um, drug burn or whatever. I, I hope I have his theory correct. I, to me, he hasn't proved it, beyond a shadow of a doubt. I may never be able to prove that. But he's an interesting guy. I think he's sincere. Um, but uh, I just, there's too much of an affinity for Charlie Manson. Um, in our next episode, we will explore Manson's rage and how it works into the Helter Skelter narrative. Thanks.